Welcome to Hope Beyond the Badge, a podcast that brings awareness, inspiration, and conversation together for first responders, families, and others interested in mental well-being in first response. New episodes weekly with your hosts, Jay Bailey and Linda Kokoros. Jay is a father, a military veteran, worked in the fire service for 18 years, and carries a diagnosis of PTSD. Linda is a mom, a wife, a certified life coach for first responders, and a suicide loss survivor of a first responder. Let's talk about it. Police officer mental health is a factor that all police chiefs have a duty to address from time to time, either directly or indirectly. How a chief prioritizes officer mental health and the emotional fitness of their department are complex tasks to be considered. I think that any chief willing to discuss these issues publicly is also displaying the strength of their character and the cultural competence that we hope to see from our leadership in first response. Today, we have Abington Police Chief David Del Papa joining us on the podcast to discuss these very issues. Chief, first of all, thank you so much for your willingness to join us in this conversation. Uh, By doing so, I think you set a really good example and hope that it starts or maybe contributes to a trend of authority participating in these discussions. To the benefit of all boots on the ground, first responder families, and the communities that they serve. So thank you. Please take a moment to introduce yourself to our audience. Well, first of all, you're welcome. Thank you for having me on. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. Uh, I think it's important to speak about these things, so um, it's a privilege to be here today. So thank you. So, Chief, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, like, I know, I know you're Chief in Abington, but tell us a little bit about you. Let our listeners know a little bit about you. Um, where, where, where are you from? Where do you come from? That type of stuff. So, unknown about me is I was born in Ohio. Um, oh, um, moved here when I was a young child, grew up in Braintree, went through the school system there. Uh, shortly after I graduated from Braintree High, I went on to uh, St. Anselm College up in New Hampshire. I got my undergraduate degree in criminal justice, and uh, just about a year after I graduated, I was fortunate enough to get on the uh, Braintree Police Department, and I served there until uh, 2021, until I took the chief job. Wow. All those years. So how many years was that? I can't, I can't add up quickly. It's about 25 years there. 25 years? 25 years. And so on, on Braintree Police Department, what, what roles did you play uh, uh, as an officer there? Started off as a patrol officer. Um, was fortunate enough to get on the motorcycle unit. Uh, worked um, domestic violence for a little while. Uh, was promoted to sergeant in 2006. Uh, again, I stayed on the, the motorcycle unit, had a short stint in detectives for a while, which was fun. It was interesting. Mm. Um, promoted to lieutenant in 2013. Uh, worked primarily in patrol as the lieutenant. My last uh, year and a half there, I worked in the professional standards division. So I was in charge of uh, training, hiring, um, all the internal affairs investigations, things mm. of that nature. So as a police officer, thank you for sharing that, by the way. Oh, you're welcome. Um, very interesting. 25 years in, in the Braintree PD. PD. Um, so during your time as an officer, um, did you experience, like, obviously 25 years, you've seen trauma um, or others struggling from trauma within your uh, department. Share with us a little bit about that, like with mental health in the department. What was, like, the structure then you know, as a young police officer coming into the department and, you know, going on through the 25 years. Like, what did you see? Lots of change over the years. Lots mm-hmm. of change. Um, early in my career, uh, when I was contemplating this question, early in my career, I was immediately brought back to a, an incident I was involved in my first year on the job, close quarters encounter with an armed subject. Uh, wow. It ended, it ended fine. Um, but... In the days that followed, I began to experience some of the symptoms of a traumatic event, but 
back then we weren't really familiar with that kind of stuff. I had was experiencing sleeplessness. I had some chest pain, and I remember at the time I went to a doctor and explained, uh, you know, I had had an incident at work. I had some chest pain, and he diagnosed me with a muscle pull and gave me some muscle relaxants. And I thought, <laughs> okay, wow. well, you know, that that was uh, that was how they treated it back then. It was, you know, here's a here's a couple of pills. Take these and. Uh, you know, I, I came home and I took I took a muscle relaxant and I ended up sleeping for about 18, 19 hours. And uh, when <laughs> I, I woke up, sleep. when I woke up, I took the bottle of pills and threw them down the toilet because <laughs> it really didn't do anything. But back then, we didn't speak about the, these kinds of things. Yeah, um, you uh, you had those events, and if you were lucky enough, I was fortunate enough to have a sergeant back then that pulled me aside and after that particular incident and check in with me and say, "Hey, how you doing?" and of course, I gave him the, the the company answer. I'm fine. Thanks for checking in, Sarge. You know, mm-hmm. I'm no worse for the wear, but you know, I I, I was. And um, like I said, we didn't have the resources back then. Or, you, or I, I shouldn't say we didn't have as many resources back then. They still had some of the resources, but it was you didn't avail yourself to them because there was uh, there was a stigma associated with uh, admitting that you were perhaps experiencing some difficulties with a situation you encountered or or needed to talk to somebody to deal with something. Yeah. When you say stigma, what's your interpretation of that, like within as, as a police officer, not as a chief, but as a police officer, and you going through that, you know, I, I experienced uh, some trauma after an incident, and, um, you know, we didn't go and get help. What? What's your interpretation of it, like stigma with that? Like, like. Well, the stigma when I first started in this profession was the concern was if you ever expressed uh, that you were having some sort of emotional difficulty, you were, the fear was you were going to lose your firearm. Mm. And with that became the loss of kind of your identity at that point. This is, you know, it's a big part of your job. If you can't carry a, a firearm when you're working, you can't work. Yeah, we've um, talked about that in previous podcasts, right? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, yeah. so it's a big deal, and the, and the fear is real that if um, if you ever uh, were experiencing some of those um, symptoms, if you if you uh, if you needed to speak with somebody back then, God forbid you you ever spoke to somebody about having feelings of harming yourself. Um, yeah, instantly. I mean, they would joke back then. One of the terms they would say is they'd put you on the rubber gun squad. You know, they give rubber you a rubber gun, rubber yeah. gun you'd be off the road, <laughs> and uh, that's it. The way we view it has changed dramatically over the years. Back then, it was seen as a sign of weakness. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I I really believe that we've moved so far forward in understanding that um, it's real, it's a part of the job, and everybody, everybody that does the job, whether they want to admit it or not, at some point or another, has experienced some type of symptoms with traumatic stress. Yeah. Whether they're willing to <clears throat> uh, accept that and speak about it is up to them, but there's nobody that has done this job that hasn't at one point or another in their career right. experienced those symptoms. Yeah, well, I think that um, a lot of officers and first responders in general, when they're out on a job and they're experiencing calls that are not so good calls, right, um, they're picking up something. And even though they might not go and admit it in the apartment or seek help for it um, or accept this is what I'm going through right now, it comes out in other um, aspects of their lives, like maybe possibly turn into alcohol um, to, you know, block out any numbness or pain or help them sleep if they're experiencing sleep disturbance um, during that time. So, yeah, I get it. Uh, even, I think even still today, there possibly is some of that, a lot of it still going on, um, just by the numbers of, you know, mental health suicides or and suicides in first response in general. Um, but, yeah, uh, I mean, when you think about, like, even way back then, you know, um, the rubber gun uh, is is the first one that I haven't heard that one before. But basically, you're going to be sitting on the desk and and not being able to do your job and possibly not being able to support your family if you can't do your job, right? So a lot of officers would would um, you know, be wary of going and seeking help, um, you know, to their administration or the higher ups or whatever. But um, what about talking about about it with your peers? 
Was that a normal or not a normal? I think it's changed. Um, you talk about back when I first started, um, if you wanted to talk about it with your peers afterwards, you, after your shift, you'd have what they call a choir practice. You know, choir you, practice? Yes. I don't know if you ever heard the term, but you'd have a choir practice. You'd find, you'd find an area either in town or your local watering hole, and you'd go there after work, sometimes after the midnight shift, and you'd just have a few beers and yeah. vent, about, uh, vent about what you dealt with that evening with your, with your peers. And um, you see the change now from then from how you dealt with it back then to now, um, especially now that you know I've gotten older in this field, instead of having choir practice, you would nowadays you can hit the gym, yeah, you know, and, and work it out that way, yeah, or sit down with a cup of coffee. Um, yeah. But back then, alcohol was the preferred treatment of choice. Oh well, that was the um, that was the coping mechanism right then was going having a few beers to to help you cope with whatever was after happening. And as you said now, and, and it was an unhealthy thing because it turns into something bigger, um, especially with alcohol, having a few beers, turns into maybe more beers going home when you go home. Um, but as you said, turning it into now, uh, hitting the gym and a more healthier coping mechanism to be able to deal with things for you. Yeah, absolutely. So um, as far as like suicide in, in a department as an officer... Um, did you ever experience that um, within your department? Early in my career, there was an officer from a neighboring city who, um, right around my age, who committed suicide unexpectedly. And I remember back then just being shocked um, by the fact that that officer took his life. And uh, I also remember there wasn't a lot of discussion about the circumstances surrounding um, his taking of his life. Um, you, know, you think about the sitcoms that talk about back in the day when people referred to cancer, they would whisper it because everybody was afraid that they would catch it if you said it out loud. Yeah. It, was yeah. kinda, it was kind of along the same lines. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember, I remember we, uh, we assisted that uh, agency with the, uh, with the funeral. It was, a, uh, it was a smaller event than uh, obviously a... a Line, line of duty death. Yeah. Um, but there were no real meaningful discussions about, hey, what could we have done, if anything, to have prevented this from happening? Yeah. Um, years later, we, we, had a, um, we had an officer who committed suicide in, in Braintree and um, very difficult time for the department. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it just raised those questions. Um, what could we do better? What things can we do better? Should we be doing to prevent stuff like this from happening? Yeah. And how did it affect it, the whole department as a whole? Like, yeah, it raised questions, but in general, as officers, what was the morale amongst the officers in the aftermath of the death of that officer? There were a wide range of emotions. I think, mm-hmm. it, you know, at the, the very baseline, um, there were people asking themselves, uh, did did I miss something? Was yeah. there something that I didn't see? Mm-hmm. Um, all the way to um, perhaps other people with closer relationships that thought, um, should I have done more? Um, maybe I sh- saw some signs, but I didn't do enough. Uh, a lot of second guessing. Yeah. Um, what could we have done better as an agency yeah. to help this individual? Um, so there was a lot of uh, introspection. Yeah. What, you know, what could you have had done? Yeah. Especially like if the officer hadn't gone, um, you know, just, just two sides of it. Like did the officer go and seek help and didn't get it or get the support that he, he was possibly looking for? Um, that's one aspect of it. Or, you know, did the officer just not go because of fear of losing his job? Um, in that sort of, that sort of way. So yeah, it's very interesting to, to sort of say, well, there's no way of finding out that now, right? But at the same time, and it doesn't really matter, but moving forward, going into now this generation um, and how things have changed and um, and what we still like to see going forward in departments um, as far as officers being comfortable going and seeking help. Um, 
and first responders, firemen, the whole the whole first responder thing. Um, but going and seeking help and not fear of losing the job and getting support on, on there. You know, Jay, do you want to chime in there? I'm wondering if there was any resources brought in, if it's okay to ask that. Uh, were there any resources brought in for, for the membership to speak with um, in the aftermath after after the suicide? Peer support came in. Okay. Uh, and uh, the resources were provided to those officers that wanted to take a part of it. Okay. Um, what, what I've learned, my experience has been that as an administrator, you should really mandate those conversations, right? It yeah. kind of eliminates the stigma. You don't have to worry about, oh, did you go, did you go and speak? I didn't go and speak. Is so-and-so going to speak? No, you just kind of mm. you mandate it, have everybody come in for a, either a debriefing or a defusing, A to Z down the roster, and make it, and, and normalize it. So mm. you could check in with all those folks. But do you think that... that do you think do you think that um officers that would if if it was saying, Yeah, listen, you need to go and speak with, with someone after this because this is this is tough on everybody. But do you think that maybe if they were struggling with it that it, it, who's brought in like is required to report if they're not feeling good, you know what I mean? Um, to the agency. Do would officers hold back on, on wanting to go and speak? Um to someone that that the administration brought in, like making it mandatory, or you know, this is private. This is here for you. Like, we want you to go and get help. You know, we want you to talk about it, regardless of if you're feeling nothing or not. Go and talk about it. This is not not reported. You know, to us, for fear of mm, this person is struggling. I'm gonna note that. Well, what you do is you you mandate that they attend, but you can't mandate that they speak. Yeah, but. I think by mandating the attendance at a debriefing or a defusing after an event like that, mm. I think it encourages the officers there to speak. And what they say in those debriefings or defusings, completely confidential. Okay. So when those officers go, there's no member of administration or management there yeah. present. It's the officers with the peer support officers fr from those units and everything they disclose in those sessions is confidential. Yeah. So those are people that they work with from other communities. Um, they're doing the same job. They've seen some of the, the similar events. Yeah. Gone through some of those uh, traumatic events themselves. So they can relate. There's a, there's, you've created this environment where um, they can be comfortable and trust that they know that they can open up and speak about these things. Yeah. With, w with no concern. Yeah. PS supports one organization that that uh, that we've talked about in the podcast before, and and um, and we we think it's great. It sounds like it sounds like you do too. Like PS supports a great resource. What other programs are in place or available when when someone reaches out for help? Can you tell us a little bit about that process? So in Abington, all the employees have access to the EAP program, the yep. employee assistance program through um, through their healthcare provider. Um, our agency, we use Metrolect, the Met Metropolitan Law Enforcement Communities Peer Support Unit. I was thankful enough to get two of my offices onto the Metrolect Peer Support Unit so we could assist other agencies um, mm. and their offices in, the, in their time of need with these traumatic events and defusings and debriefings. Um, in addition to that, uh, they also have the resource to use. The Boston Police has a robust stress unit. Yeah, um, that's available to them, and then there are some other resources. I know that one of the resources, uh, some of the offices that I've known personally over the years have used is the Onsite Academy. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know if either one of you have We're familiar. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's been a great resource. I I know several offices from um, other agencies that have taken part in the services there, and uh, they have nothing but wonderful things to say about um, the resources available to them. Yeah. Jay has talked about Onsite Academy also, um, any uh, valuable um, help from them? Yeah, the absolutely. I, I can't say enough good things about Onsite Academy. I guess my short answer, Jay, is that I would recommend to any department to have multiple options available, not yeah. just one. You can't yeah. just have one. You can't rely on just the EAP. You can't rely on one particular stress unit or peer support unit. You have to have 
multi- multiple. multiple options available. Yeah, and I think that's a great idea, Chief, because um, <coughs> everyone's different. So, you know, we're all humans and um, people respond to different types of support, whether it be, you know, going to like on-site academy or um, peer support or whatever it might be. You know, people respond to different things and finding out what works for them um, to benefit for the betterment, I suppose, is, um, you know, key, right, to, to have them healthy because they can get help and still be able to work. Um, and do their job in a healthy in a healthy way in a healthy manner, you know. And that support is like priceless as far as for a police officer to know that, you know, they can they can come and get that and and feel comfortable going to you or or um, your administration to be able to get that help um, in the future. Let's talk about Abington. Can we talk about Abington? Sure. On, on the police on the department. Sure. Um, so. What made you want to apply even, you know, to put your name forward to take on the task as police chief in Abington, Um, you know, coming into a department that was struggling um, morally um, within the department itself, but in the town? And what made you, like, get in there? Well, I tell you, I... I grew up in Braintree, and as a young child, I wanted to be a police officer in the community I grew up in. It's, it, you know, when you, be, when you decide that you want to be a police officer, if that's something that you want to do, um, to serve your own community is just unbelievable. So it was like, it was, a, it was a home run to graduate college and a year later start with my hometown PD. Yeah. Um, 25 years was a long time working there, but at the same time, I had been an Abington resident for about 20 years. And I had met so many wonderful officers that had come from that department and left for one reason or another. Yep. And um, when the opportunity presented itself, especially in these turbulent times in law enforcement, um, it was just my opinion. It was too good of an opportunity to give up. And it was about the opportunity to give back to my new hometown. Um, you know, I, I, Braintree will always be my hometown because I grew up there. Yeah. But... I've been in Abington for over two decades. It's, it, for all intents and purposes, this is this is my hometown now. Right, so, absolutely. Um, the opportunity to give back there and serve my new community was just too great an opportunity. Yeah. So now that you're settled in, right? You 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 came. I you, don't know if I'm quite settled, but well, I, think, <laughs> I think you are. Well, I think you're 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 making your, yourself settled for sure, and um, you know, settling in in a in a very nice way. Um, but now that you are chief, you, you, you've been there since October 2021. Yes. Um, tell us now, like, you know, what do you see, like, for the future, like, coming in? What was your plans, like, at the beginning? Or did you have a plan um, at the beginning to come in and change um, the morale, I suppose, um, building confidence back in the officers that were there? Um like share with us a little bit about that. Like, what was your your plans in the beginning? I think our listeners would like to sort of hear that little side of you, you know, um, and then also like, what are your plans, you know, now for the future, implementing, especially also talking about mental health in your department. So I'm my own biggest critic. I will wholeheartedly admit that uh, completely naive about how quickly I could get done what I wanted to get done when I came in. I uh, my plan when I came in was to, I uh, wanted to hire it, like 10 or 11 offices right away. Let's get right up to fully staffed and uh, get all these new offices on the road, get them in the PD. We'll stop the forced overtime. We'll get people back into specialty positions. We're going to move this department forward at light speed. It doesn't work. It doesn't work <laughs> like that. Well, it did happen. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> as much as we're here to talk about how things have changed for the positive in um as far as addressing the mental health needs of uh, yep. today's youngest offices, the the quite the opposite has happened as far as interest in the job. Um, when I first came on the job, if you didn't score a ninety nine or a hundred, uh, forget about it. Yep, you, there was no chance you were getting on the job. And now, when I when I first came in, we had twenty seven 
people with residency preference on the West for Abington PD. That represented the entirety of the people in town who took the civil service exam and passed it and had residency preference. And I, I, may, I don't have the numbers. I haven't looked it up. But I would say back when I came on, it would have been closer to maybe 1,000. At sure. least in the hundreds. Mm. At least in the hundreds. The officer talked about that last night, um, and his put when he, you know, he did his, um, went you know, signing up and whatever applying. Um, they had like a big, big school gymnasium with thousands of people and the whole thing, and and now it's like small, yeah, rooms where they would have these people in. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so we started off with uh, twenty-seven people, got notified. I tried to hire uh, seven officers. I ended up hiring four. We had mm. 16 people sign. Had an orientation night. I lost three people during the orientation night. Mm. They just wow. walked away. And then after that, we started backgrounds. We had down to 10. Mm. And after interviews, we ended up with seven. And then after the PT test, we ended up with four. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, so that was a shocker for yeah, you. It was. It was. Um, so we, we, we have had to make some adjustments in um, how we hire, um, just some adjustments to the hiring process. Yeah. As far as putting the, the biggest thing was the PT test. I don't want to get too off topic here, so feel free to edit this, Jay. But no, you're fine. The biggest thing was to uh, start with the PT uh, test and go from there because uh, a lot of the n- new recruits are having difficulty passing the, uh, the PT test to get into the police academy. So yeah. you, you really have to start with that or you or you're wasting uh, time and energy hmm. investing in the background. So we started with that, and we adjusted our process, and we've had good success. Uh, we just had another three officers come out of the academy. I saw that the other day, yeah. So as I, I would say as, as frustrating it w- as it was in the beginning that I wasn't getting the numbers that I wanted, um, in the end, a year and a half later, I, I'm, I consider myself fortunate that we had to slow it down because the seven officers that I was able to hire are just the, the calibers off the chart. I'm, I, uh, I'm lucky. I'm just going to knock on wood here because <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was worth the wait. I mean, I, I wow. guess, yeah, it was worth the wait. Um, it was worth the wait and the struggle and the lessons we learned to get the, the caliber of the officers we have. And that's the, the solid foundation that I really wanted in place yeah. to uh, build this department going forward. So actually... The, the 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 shocker at the beginning of having twenty four seven at the start and then being able to have four and then also going through the process in a different manner of of how you were you were what you were going to do to hire right change up a little bit it was sort of a learning experience but also a good one um, because um, what you're saying is the caliber that you get is is amazing excellent the town of Abington is going to be really happy to hear that. <laughs> I hope so. We're working hard. Mm. I think a lot of years ago, you know, if someone wanted to become a police officer or, a f- you know, a firefighter, um, it was definitely like, you know, the 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 sort of gold star of a job that you were going to, you know, take on. I'm going to become a police officer. And um, I think into this, this environment today, it's a struggle. Um with the environment of, um, with mental health also, but just in, in policing in general um, and how they're perceived um, by the public, it's hard. So I think that police officers or first responders who are going into that field as a job, it's definitely not just a job, it's a calling, you know. Um, it has to be um, for you to be able to really, like, stick it out, you know. Um and, and get through sort of the, the tough times, right? I think a lot of today's candidates, their eyes are wide open to what they're getting into. Yeah. Um, well said. Yeah. What about, like, um, you know, your new recruits? You have some new recruits in there. Mm-hmm. Um, regarding, I know the academy has changed over the years about what's been introduced to them um, in regards to mental health and trauma, PTSD, that type of stuff. Um, as a new recruit coming in, like, I'm hoping that that's where the new generation coming in are going to feel, you know, um, how would you say, it's easier 
for a new recruit coming in to be able to talk about. I'm, I'm having a bit of a hard time after that call I was on, um, how to deal with it and be able to approach someone and support. What's your approach on that in general in, in your department about speaking about mental health? I, you, well, you know, I speak about it a lot. I'm, yes, I'm a absolutely. Big, I'm a big proponent of it. Yeah. Um, I think it's a lot easier for the newer generation of police officers to speak about it because uh, they've been discussing it since day one in the police academy. It's part of the curriculum now. Um, identifying those individuals that you're going to come across with during your career that are suffering from a mental health crisis, how to identify the signs of someone in crisis, mm. and to provide you with the training and skills to ad- address those people um, and get them the help that they need. Okay. And when you, when you begin to speak about that openly about treating others, and then it's, it becomes easier to speak about how you recognize it within yourself yeah, and how you, can, um, how you can deal with those symptoms yourself when you begin to experience and recognize them and experience. Yeah. So you just said to me there earlier on, well, I talk about it openly all the time, and you know that. Tell us about that. Like, why, why do you do that? Because it's... It, if you don't talk about it, we're never going to solve the the problem. It's it, it's a very real issue. I think for years and years, it it was just one of those things that people just ignored yeah. um, mm-hmm. in, in this profession. It was, you know, you, you'd you'd have a you'd have the old salty sergeant tell you, you know, toughen up, Buttercup, you know, yeah. or uh, tighten the strap on your helmet. This is this is what we're here to deal with. That doesn't lead to um, a healthy and safe work environment. That doesn't lead to uh, long, professional, enjoyable careers that leads to burnout. That leads to substance use disorders. Right. Yeah. That leads to all sorts of issues. So, um, we there are there are mental health issues within law enforcement. There there is an extreme amount of trauma that these officers experience day in and day out. Mm. Um, we need to recognize that. We need mm. to recognize what the symptoms of experiencing those traumatic events are, provide our officers with the skills to cope with those experiences um, so they can stay healthy and happy and leave, lead productive lives, not only professional lives, but in their personal lives. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And if you don't talk about it, nothing is going to change. Um, again, we, we go back to the stigma back when I first started. You would, you would never, never speak about this openly. You would never tell your coworker, "Hey, you know what? That um, that Sid's call we went to—that's right. that's not sitting with me well. Mm. You know, I'm feeling sad." You would never say that. Never, never say that in a million years. And you're absolutely right; it would come out in other ways. Like even if the cultural response has changed uh, over the years, the human condition hasn't much. So you know, people would quietly begin changing their relationship with alcohol or the way that. The way they're able to uh, experience joy, interact with their family, other relationships, areas suffer, and eventually so does uh, so does duty performance. I agree with you. Talking about it is is the most important thing, and and I really applaud you for doing so. It's funny. Uh, one of the questions uh, you asked was, uh, "Did I recognize um, the signs of uh, traumatic stress early on in my career?" And I didn't. Mm. I didn't. And it, you wouldn't recognize them in yourself because you didn't really speak about it and you wouldn't really recognize them in others the way we recognize them today. Back then, you would have a guy come in and just, you'd be like, oh, he's off. He's just having mm-hmm. a bad night, right? Yeah. But what you didn't really know was that he, he the call he went on the shift before has, has really gotten to him and he, he doesn't know how to how to deal with it. Yeah. How to, how to handle those emotions. And then that spills over not only in the job, his performance on the other calls in the job, but then he brings it home right? Yeah. and it starts to affect his life. And you'd start to see guys that, you know, you know, the, the guy you dealt with that never drank too much before is he's now going out three, four times a week. And, you know, you'd, nobody would pull him aside and say, Hey, uh, you know, you, you're hitting the bottle a little hard lately. Is everything yeah. okay? You get to mind your own business. Whereas, Nowadays, at least in my last job, and I'm hoping this is the culture I can foster here, is um, recognizing behavioral changes in your peers at work yeah. and noticing when they're off and uh, 
when they might need to be pulled aside for for that talk, whether it's you do it yourself or you go to your supervisor and, and say, hey, listen, I, th- I think there's something wrong with one of my coworkers. Yeah. Um, I don't have a tight relationship with them. Perhaps you do or perhaps somebody else can grab them and pull them aside and they need to talk. And you need to encourage that behavior. Mm. Yeah. Because when I first started, it would be, not only would it be not well received. I mean, you'd you would you would likely end up with an enemy if you did yep. that in the beginning. You'd have somebody say, "Mind your own business." If I if I need something, I'll ask for it. But sometimes you're not going to ask for it, right? Yeah. Right. Sometimes someone's going to come to you and just give you that nudge and say, "Hey, is there something going on?" Yeah. And that's all it takes is that little nudge to get the ball rolling. Well, they even just start to start putting it in your head, right? Planting the yeah. seeds to say. Mm. What are they noticing about me? You know, yeah. is there something wrong? Um, I think a lot of first responders don't recognize the science themselves until they're in it, like yeah. in it deep. And and when they're in it deep, then it's overwhelming that they don't even know where to start to get over because, you know, now they're they're drinking a lot. They're irritable at home. They're not being involved and they're isolating away from family general activities and and also um you know not i'm hiding you know police officers are and first responders are good at hiding things yeah you don't want to Put expose them. your vulnerabilities yeah right. and not allowing themselves to be vulnerable and trying to fix things i'm going to fix this i'm going to because i'm a fixer i i come up with solutions that's right and you call me to solve your problems yes absolutely so i'm a fixer i'm going to fix this on my own and, um, you know, as my friend here beside me um, discovered that he couldn't fix his on his own, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so I want to um, chime a little bit about Abington um, because I have a history at Abington. Um, Alex, we lost Alex just for the listeners who, who haven't um, heard this before, but we lost Alex um, four and a half years ago to suicide. Um, he was a police officer in Abington at the time. He did not serve under you. Um, I just want to make that clear um, to our listeners. Um, I wish he did serve under you because I know he would have probably um, sought the help um, that he needed to to and get the support that he needed um, while you were there. But needless to say, that's it's different now. When you came on Abington PD, um, it was the first time in in three years back then when you came on PD, it was the first time that Alex was, was recognized um, within the department publicly, you know, putting it out on social media, recognizing his anniversary um, that day. And I, I'll never forget going, what the heck just happened? And, and I knew you were on the department. I had not met you at the time. And um, I was like, okay, that like blew me away. I don't know whether it was you that did it personally or whether you had someone to do it personally, but it was the first time that it, it happened. So I'm, I'm assuming um, that it was, that was you that made it happen. And um, it was the first time, you know, when we did last lose Alex, um, all the guys, I mean, all the guys in the department, his peers um, were very, very supportive and still are today. And, um, and that was what we got sort of from the department. As far as um, the acting chief at the time, deputy chief, or anybody in the administration, I mean, our family never got a call, um, not even a phone call, from the department to say, we're sorry for your loss. Um, so I, I had never met the chief. Um, there wasn't at the funeral, he wasn't at the wake, he wasn't anything, he wasn't involved in any of it. So, um, but... And I don't. I just thought I wanted to paint a picture of the difference now um, for the community that you coming in um, has been such a breath of fresh air of you coming into the department and um, and I got to speak with you. I mean, even that day at the anniversary, people people don't know you don't look for recognition. So I, I'm going to sort of I'm going to put you out there. I'm oh. just glad we're not on TV right now because you're making me turn red. <laughs> no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you out there. But basically, um, you know, the chief came in um, the morning of Alex's anniversary. I own a little cafe here in Weymouth and he came into the cafe. Obviously, he knew who I was. 
even though I didn't know who he was or had not met you. Um, but he came in and bought the department pastries, um, not in uniform, totally didn't know who he was. And I could have probably even saved him and I wouldn't <laughs> have recognized you. Um, but he came in that morning and bought pastries and brought them into the department. And it was later on, um, one of the, one of the captains from Weymouth said, New Abington police chief was in this morning. And I was like, why didn't he introduce himself to me? Um, and he said, well, he probably didn't want to upset you. And I said, well, I would love to meet him and, and speak with him. And very, very shortly, within like a couple of days, maybe, or, or within that week, we we were introduced and we had a chat. And um, I have this man's phone number on my speed dial um, because he had given it to me and said, if you ever need anything, you give me a call. Just for whatever um, it might be. So, but there's so much... Um, you know, that you're doing in the community, I can see it um, without even um, knowing what your plans are for the future um, of what you want to implement and, and boost morale in your department. Without even knowing that, I feel it, um, that there's a sense of huh, leadership um, there that was needed in, in the department, not only within the department as for police officers um but within the whole culture as a community and and also for the residents of of abington and um so i'm so happy um that you're there and that you're open to conversation um of improvement for betterment of for the best for all right and there was one thing in our conversations that you did share with me um and i i always repeat it because when you did say it to me I got you know my hair stood on on end it gave me goosebumps and and you did say to me Linda if we don't talk about this um if we if we talk about it it's gonna lessen the stigma and it's and unless lives lost and and I believe that and I know that when you said that to me it was true what that you meant it that you're not saying it just to say it that you mean it and I appreciate that so much I'm coming from you. Well, first of all, thank you for the kind words. <laughs> he, me, blushes. Ma- yes. he blushes. He blushes. <laughs> um, before I took that job, I did a lot of research into the department and spoke with former members and current members, and Alex's loss hit that department hard. Yeah, um, sure. So it was a priority for me to, when I got in there, hit the ground running and let them know that I recognized that loss, right? Recognize yeah. that loss. Um, recognize the importance of providing a supportive environment for officers if they ever were going to struggle with mental health issues. And um, making sure that his his memory uh, continued on for the better, for the greater good. Yeah. Um, there's nothing you can do afterwards to change what happened. You can only make positive change going forward. Yeah. So that was my intent, yeah. um, to kind of lay the groundwork and let everybody know this was an awful tragedy. Um, we can't change what happened, but yeah. we can certainly do our best and damnedest to prevent something like this from happening in the future. And that starts with talking about it. Talking about it, yeah. Talking can't, about their own feelings. Yeah. And how they feel about it. Yeah. Yeah. And... uh it was, yeah, I, I, I tell you, I, uh, I didn't know how well-received that post was going to be when I put that post on there mm-hmm. because it's not something you see all the time. But no, um, it was important Yeah, that we got that done. And, and I it's kn- important that we do it every year yeah. because you're like, uh, and we've had conversations offline about yes. this topic. And, yeah. um, you know, we share, uh, I've shared with you that I lost a family member to suicide. Yeah. And... Uh, it's uh, it's tough, but you have to, you have to keep talking about it. Yeah, mm. it's the only way to be able to make it normal. And and uh, that post, chief, I mean, there was no words to describe what that did for our family. Um, I don't want to get emotional um, when I talk about it, but um, I I do. It is an emotional thing for a family to go through. You know, the pain doesn't go away, you know. No. Just, you just learn to live through it, you know, and you know that. If you, you lost yeah. a family member, right? So um, 
and it's hard and a lot of people you know don't get that it's a very very different experience of losing someone um because you do have all those unanswered questions and and the what ifs and the whys and i i mean i said that to jay in, in just in conversation to the day yep. you know if i had an opportunity for all those souls um and first responders especially but all those souls who've been lost i i want to ask them you know why you know why why did you wait too long why did you w- wait so long um to to not to get help um when you let things like slide and hide them from families why I, you know so i still have those whys and um i feel for me you know doing this podcast and and connecting with jay and being able to um put a positive message out there we're not doing this for a negative to bash any department but i do know you know from first help families um to the organization from first help i'm in connect with a lot of families nationwide um who we've been put into you know in contact with um to be able to share our own struggles amongst each other and be able to help each other and lift each other up, right? Um, that There is a lot of departments that they have just forgotten about their loved one. And, and you know, at the beginning, even though departments have said, we'll be there for you and, you know, to help with everything that you need and whatever that might be, they have, uh, haven't been. And, um, and you didn't know Alex personally, but for you to do that, says a lot about your character and um um what is just more to come i'm excited to see what is going to happen in the department for the future um in a in a, such a positive way um in the community and um in general in department also and especially with all those young recruits coming in um and i know you have a lot of good senior guys there too and that was one of the things um that I've learned through doing this podcast and, and talking with some of the officers, because I talk with them, um, especially Alex's buddies um, who are still there, um, you know, talking with them and, and talking with them on the podcast. I was probably f- like um, one of the first times um, sharing, hearing their side uh, of their perspective after the loss of Alex. That hit me hard. And, and, and me talking back with them and them getting to hear, you know, as a family of loss of our perspective. And it was pretty emotional um, time for both of us to, um, when I did get talk to one of the officers who, who was in the department. It was pretty emotional um, time to be able to experience that. And it sort of hit me, whoa, I'm hearing this. This is four and a half years later. And I'm hearing his experience of that time for the first time. And... Uh, yeah, that was tough. That was that was hard. Make realize even more validating why we're doing this and to make talking about this openly more. And even like four and a half years later, you know, that officer sort of still has those feelings. Still um, bottled up. Still bottled up inside, you know. And I'm sure there's other officers still bottled up inside and, and want to share or be able to talk, you know. And I've connected some officers and said, I'd love to hear your your perspective on on that and we're going to do that you know mm-hmm. as just a group talking together I'd love to hear you in a healthy way you know um and four and a half years later there's some of them that are still struggling you know what i mean yeah and um i am even even the chief um a while ago said to me hey linda march is going to be we we launched the uh, alex chico chorus memorial fund back in march uh, at the house and we invited chief del papa and uh he came and uh so we were able to um you know share with everyone else that was there um, that evening that we were launching the Alex Chico Chorus Memorial Fund to raise funds um, to get to places so we can make blankets um, for to get to the likes of Onsite Academy where they support first responders that are going there with, in honour of Alex. Um, share a little story about how the blankets came out, but they're called Hope Blankets. And Hope's, you know, is the meaning is healing within, optimistic for the future the power of positive self-thinking and also embracing where they are now. If they're going and receiving treatment, they can't heal or start the process of healing from where they were before because they're no longer the same, not the same person, but healing from where they are now and then being able to move forward um, into a, a new healing journey. And uh, so we wanted those officers to be able to um, leave, first responders in general, leave with a blanket 
um, with the hopes that um, that they're still going to be able to continue with treatment and their healing journey once they leave a facility or of whatever it might be. So we are doing that. We're raising funds and um, we're hoping to start some of those hope blankets very, very soon. Yes, ma'am. And um, we're getting some money into the into the Alice G. Memorial Fund by the community doing pinwheels outside and we're doing a pinwheel garden and uh, we're raising money for that we still have about maybe I don't know maybe 30 or 40 pinwheels there but I'm going to sell them all and um, <laughs> we're going to we're going to uh, buy the materials and, and that's what the funds are for is basically purely to to buy those materials so that we can have the community help us make those blankets um, and they can all contribute to to the to healing of a, of a first responder and then and then more on you know we're doing the podcast now that has has developed, and that's again promoting talking, um, and just making raw conversation easier, um, and and a norm in in departments and in amongst ourselves for sure. Um, and then that's it. I mean, and basically, then the chief also said to me, um, just in conversation, "Hey, March is a great um, time to have a walk, mm. to have a road race. <coughs> so, can we talk about having a road race in next year in March?" And I was like. Yeah, and here's the chief coming to me. I didn't even have to approach him, and he said, "We'll take care of it. We'll if you're on, we'll we'll do it." And um, so I know that'll probably be in the works, and we can start planning that very soon, um, for next year. So look forward to that, folks, um, because it will be held in Abington in honor of Alex, and um, we'll have those funds go to the Hope Memorial Fund and our the Alex Jukakoris Memorial Fund and hopefully first help we can donate some funds to to that there but it'll be a, a good cost for sure. Just continuing commitment to raise awareness. Yep. Raise the funds to help those in need. Yeah, absolutely for sure and it's all for the greatest good, right? Correct. You, you say that to yeah. me all the time. Yeah. Um chief summarizing um you know going forward in the department what would you like to see happen? Um ultimately ideally what would you like to see happen as far as mental health culture overall? Just summarizing. You have to foster an open, caring, and supportive environment. Mm. And that starts at the top. Let yeah. you, letting the folks that work for you know that you're there for them. Not only in the good times when they're making the great arrests and making the department look good on the front page of the Herald, but in the bad times when they're having a tough time, when they're going through those struggles, and letting them know that they can come to their administration or their fellow officer can come to administration or to a supervisor and say, hey, one of my coworkers is having a hard time. We need to get them help or we need to check in with them Yeah, and supporting that and letting them know that we're there to support them. We're going to provide them with the resources that they need to get through the struggle that they're, they're dealing with at the time. Yeah, And then we're going to be there afterwards. It's about providing the resources and then continuing with the support for the aftercare. Yeah. Make sure that we're not just going to, it's not like retreading a tire. You don't just slap the Band-Aid on a tire with a leak and then put, a, put the bike back out on the road because you're going to get another flat. It's about developing those coping mechanisms, uh, p- developing those skills to help deal with whatever that trauma is that you're dealing with mm-hmm. and then proceed forward with a healthy life and career. Yeah. I think that also, you know, how refreshing that is for a, a first responder to be able to go to his superior and um, be able to uh, feel comfortable talking about that. And as you said, Chief, for sure, um, you know, if a first responder, if any of those officers, um, you know, witness a, a, first resp- or a police officer, you know, going to your administration and getting the support and help that they need, they're also going to believe that they're also going to receive that um, because they've witnessed it, right? But on the other hand, um, you know, if they go, if, a, if they also witness a first responder going and seeking help, but they did not get the support that they needed, um, and quite the opposite, there another officer watching in on that, right, is is also going to believe that that's going to happen to them and they'll hold back. Um, so, yeah, it is important for your officers to be able to... Um, feel comfortable going seeking help and know that that support is there and and it yeah it does it starts right at the top with you yeah, it's a lot yeah. more than providing the options mm. yeah. yeah you can provide all the options in the world but if the if the men and women that uh work in the department don't believe that you're going to support them through those tough times yeah. then 
It doesn't matter what options you provide. They're not going to avail themselves. Keyword there, you said believe. Uh, and, and that's the thing is, is supporting um, a, a belief in your officers that this is going to be true. You know what I mean? Um, but thank you for saying that. I, I really appreciate that because I do know um, and I do believe that that is to be true from you for sure. It's incredible to hear a chief talk from from that perspective, and uh, I think the rewards the rewards will be felt. Um, I'm wondering if there's any other factors you can think of that contribute to an officer's openness to seek help. Maybe when it's um, you know behaviors aren't witnessed by others, there's you know that there's no conduct that warrants anybody to reach out to them, but just fostering that environment that encourages them to seek help on their own. I think a lot of it has to do with the culture of law enforcement. You like we just we touched on it earlier briefly. Um, we're the fixes. Mm. Yeah. Uh, not only that, but you, when uh, at least when I came on, you, it was beaten into you to not show any weakness, especially when you were dealing with a potentially violent or competitive individual. You know, you t- you just have this image of. You know, everything rolls off my back. Uh, Superhero. uh, Yeah, I'm here to solve all the problems. Mm -hmm. I don't have them. I'm here to solve them. Um, And you change that culture and you let people know it's okay to hurt. Yeah. It's okay to have tough times. Yeah. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Right. Whether whether or not you believe it. It's a given. It's a a given. Given this field, it's going to happen. Yeah. So how can you deal with that? How can we set our offices up for future success? We're asking them to come in and do this job where we know they're going to experience these traumas. We know it for right. a fact. So what can we do to mitigate the effects of those traumatic experiences? What can we do to set them up for success? Yeah. And, that, and that's the only way is to be able to talk about it. Right, and, and for them to know that there is resources there and they are going to get the genuine help that they need and support that they need to be able to heal from, from that trauma experience and be able to live a very healthy life and still do their job. Yeah. It's tough to put your ego aside. <laughs> Jay, I know you, it sure I know you know it's tough. Yeah. As a, as a veteran, as someone in the former fire service, uh, police officers, it's, it's tough to put that ego aside. It's tough to say... It's tough to say, I need help. And it's so rewarding when you do, you know, when, when a person does. And you can, uh, you know, speaking from my own experience, uh, the strength that you feel when you do. But that's not what I anticipated feeling. I don't think it's what a lot of people anticipate feeling um, when, they, when they initially reach out for help and begin to heal. Um, and I think... That would, you know, that that's a good market to look for in terms of, of cultural change or progress is when we get to a point where people are, are willing to do that before crisis. Uh, because that's what it, you know, that's, uh, I think that's what it takes for so many of, of our culture, of the first responder culture is, you know, we, we can suffer, right? So, so we get to a pretty low point um, before it's recognized by someone else. So we're finally willing to let go and say, um, you know, I can't do it anymore. And then you realize, man, if I had just done this, you know, so far back, um, uh, you know, my, my life could have regained some purpose and some meaning. I, I didn't have to go through this experience or that experience. Things could have gotten better sooner. Um, and I think we're seeing, we're seeing that change come through conversations um, like this and recognition of I mean, you, you put it perfectly, the, the, the job is engagement in trauma, uh, first response from many different perspectives, but you're going to engage in trauma, and that's it's going to have an impact uh, on, on your mental health, on your emotional well-being. It ought to. You know, you go, you mentioned a SIDS call earlier. When you, when you go on a call like that, um, the science is in. You're going to feel different walking walking out that door. And when things like that start to build up, um, you know, I, I would like to see um, an environment where, where, you know, help is available and, and people are comfortable seeking it. And I think we'll see the benefits uh, in the individuals and first respond to families and in the communities that they serve. It's going to be everywhere. I liked your choice of words, Jay. When you said you gain strength. 
Yeah, man. Right? And it's about changing that perception. The perception years ago was if you asked for help, you were weak. Mm. But the perception should be and really is if you're asking for help, it's because you're strong. You're strong. You've yeah. recognized that you need it. Right? Yes. I mean, if you, it just makes common sense. If you were drowning in a lake and there was a branch you could reach out and grab for help to keep you from drowning, you'd grab it, right? Yeah, you wouldn't, I got this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it, it's just about changing the perception and the culture of um, how you address, how the individual officer addresses those traumas when they begin to experience them. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And not waiting until it gets to a crisis situation. Um you know, where it's, it, you know, it's harder to get out of that hole, you know, mm. whatever it might be, depression, all of that type of stuff. So, yeah, I think key, like, it would be nice if we could, they could all recognize it before it got to a stage like that, you know. But I want to ask Jay a question. I haven't asked you a question in a podcast in a long time. Okay. When you, when you were open to um, receiving help, mm-hmm. letting help in, did it feel like a relief to you once you did? A tremendous relief. It was a tremendous relief um, to, to reach out for help uh, to, to address um, traumatic reactions that I had long ago stopped pretending weren't there. I was just, I wasn't reaching out for that stick, right? I was trying to solve that stuff on my own, and, and I just wasn't able to. Um, yeah. I just wasn't able to. So so it was a relief, and it was a surprise to me that it did feel like strength when, when I reached out for help. It was like, man, I had to, I had to muster something up to change uh, decades of just, you know, gritting my teeth and, and getting a little hotter and a little hotter because uh, that had worked for so long in ways that I could recognize, and it had failed me in so many ways that, that I wasn't able to recognize. Yeah. Uh, but the symptoms were there in, in my behavior, my, my attitudes, my thoughts, um, and, and I needed some healing. So when I firmly, finally started, started to get that, um, there was hope, you know, that there was hope that I could, that I could find myself again. Cause I mean, I was, I was hurting and I've, I've said before, I lost my soul for a minute there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when, and I'd lost hope at, at getting it back. And there is help out there. If if somebody if somebody's listening to this podcast and and you're going through a period of suffering and you're a first responder, um, there is help and, and it and it works. You know, it's um, it really does work. You can be okay again for mm-hmm. sure. And it's okay not to be okay. Yeah, it's it makes Just sense. It. it makes sense to Just not be it. okay. You know, sometimes. Yeah. You have to say it. You have to say it. And it helps. It absolutely does. I'm not okay. And uh, I'm dealing with this, and I'm not okay. And um, and the more you start to start practicing that and put that into practice, guys out there, whoever's listening, um, you know, you're not weak, you're strong, and um, because you're you're doing this for you, you're doing this for your family, you're doing it for your community that you serve in, um, for your department that you serve in. So it's overall um, betterment for you. Um, so yeah, you're strong. Chief, I I can't say enough about you. Um, I think <laughs> I wish you'd stop. You making me. Uh, I, I, I can't say enough about this guy. He does come in sometimes on Saturday mornings and gets a, a jalapeno cheddar biscuit. Oh, I love um, him. Um, but he, I can't say enough about this guy. And he's 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 a guy's guy. He's just a chief. He's a, a leader in the, in his community, and um, but he's also become a friend of mine, and Jay. And um, and I I can't wait to have you in here another time and be able to talk about all the different things that are happening in the future. Um, I look forward to it. Yes, thank you. And uh, we appreciate you. And uh, I think that's it for today, Chief. Thank you so much for coming in. We appreciate thank you so you much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Till next time. Until next time. Excellent.